Hello, and welcome to Homegrown KC, a podcast dedicated to exploring Kansas City's fascinating history and sharing stories from its rich past. I'm your host, Laura. Join me today as we explore a piece of Kansas City's history. Welcome back, everyone. I am so sorry this was delayed. Thank you to all of my loyal listeners for your patience. This is part three of episode two, the Country Cub Plaza of series four, Treasures of Kansas City. If this is your first time listening, please pause here. Go back and listen to parts one and two of this episode. Part one is the life of J.C. Nichols, the creator of the plaza, and... Part two is the plaza from its creation until Nichols' death in 1950. After that, then you can come back and listen to this one. If you enjoyed today's episode, I hope you will also check out episode one of this series, which is the history of Western Auto Building. That's parts one and two. Um, My standalone episode from December 2020 about the plaza lights is also related to this episode. All right, recap. The plaza officially began in 1922, and it's been very popular and very successful during the 20s, 30s, and 40s. Then Nichols dies from throat cancer in 1950. Mill Creek Parkway is renamed J.C. Nichols Parkway in his honor. The street name was originally, um, sorry, recently changed back to Mill Creek, as I mentioned in my episode Legacy of the Confederacy, Part 2. So J.C. Taylor, who had served as the president for many years under Nichols, then became chairman of the company, and Nichols' son Miller took over as president. Miller, as I have mentioned before, is almost as big a name in Kansas City as his father. Therefore, I think he has earned his own episode, and I will not give him much of a bio here. I couldn't find anything about Taylor online except that before becoming president, he had been VP, which, you know, makes perfect sense. Miller was the middle child of three, and he followed in his father's footsteps by attending KU and then joining the company. He also fought in World War II. Now, like I said, he became president of the company in 1950, and he retired from the company in 1988. Taylor did not serve as the chairman for long, only 13 years. Then Miller took over as chairman after he stepped down, and a Mr. Davis K. Jackson became president. Mr. Jackson retired um, from president, stepped down, and became chairman of the executive committee in 1980 and remain an advisor to the company until 1987. Now, George T., uh, from the previous episode, the one whose name I, last name I cannot pronounce, um, I, I realized I never gave him a bio, so here's a quick bio on him. He was the manager of the plaza, um, and you may or may not remember, I also mentioned he's the one who bought most of the land on which the plaza sits from George Law. George T. retired in 58, 
and he was succeeded by Robert O'Keefe. Now, my first thought was, is he related to Georgia O'Keefe? As you do. However, I could not find any evidence to support this wish, and seems like it's actually a very common last name. Robert, also known as Bob, started working for the Nichols Company in 1932. He served in World War II, and then he went back to working for the company. He joined the board of directors in 1960, and finally retired from the company in 79, at which time he had been a senior VP. So sometime between 58 and 79, he became a VP. I didn't think you could do both, serve on the board and be a VP at the same time, but maybe that's just nonprofits. I don't know. I still don't understand how boards work half the time. Anyway, he was born in 1914 and died in 20, uh, 2008. Sorry, His obit is not written in chronological order, but it sounds like he really accomplished a lot during his lifetime. All right, enough of president this and VP back that. Let's get back to the plaza, which is what you're all here for. The infamous J.C. Nichols Fountain was installed in Mill Creek Park at the entrance to the plaza in 1960. It actually sits on public land, and so it's technically not part of the plaza, but most, I think, treat it as such. It was a gift to the city from Nichols' children. Actually, it has a rather fascinating story on its own. So for those of you who have never been to Kansas City, if you look up images of the plaza, it will probably appear, and it will definitely appear if you just look up fountains of the city. So it was designed by Henri Leon Graeber. Um, he's French, so I'm not sure if I'm saying his last name correctly. I'm pretty confident about the Henri Leon. Um, but Henri was born in 1854 and died in 1941. He created this masterpiece in 1910, excuse me, for Clarence McKay. McKay was born in 1874 and died in 1938. He was a millionaire who lived on Long Island. According to findagrave.com, quote, he was the chairman of the board for the Postal Graph and Cable Corporation and president for the McKay Radio and Telephone Telegraph Company, end quote. So I guess after the death, his, this fountain was vandalized um, because a piece of it was missing when the Nichols family bought it. Um, and then they moved it to KC in 51. It was renovated um, by Herman Frederick and then installed in 1960. And um, many, many, many years later, the piece that had been missing was returned to the fountain. Um, so Simon is a native of KC. That's cool. And, quote, The fountain has four heroic horsemen, which are said to represent four of the world's mightiest rivers, the Mississippi, the Volga, the Seine, and the Rhine. It also has four smaller figures of children playing on fish, commonly referred to as dolphins. However, one of the four dolphins had gone missing prior to purchase, and so a replica was commissioned. The fountain underwent an extensive renovation in 2014 that was funded by the Miller Nichols Charitable Foundation. As part of the renovation, the missing dolphin was found and took its rightful place in the fountain. The replica dolphin now sits nearby on a concrete base 
with an accompanying plaque describing its history and the history of the original it replaced. End quote. So the first building on the plaza to be torn down occurred in 1961. That was the Chandler Building, which, as I mentioned in the last episode, occupied Plaza Land before there was a plaza. And that space became a parking lot for several years before the Grialda Tower was installed. Halls opened a very nice, very fancy store on October 4th, 1965. It was, quote, by far the most ornate and expensively built hall in the entire shopping facility. It featured inlaid lapis floors and Baccarat sh- crystal chandeliers, end quote. Emory, Bird, and Thayer closed in August of 68, and Macy's took over that space um, in September. Um, then Sears closed its store on the plaza in 75. Really, during the 60s, it sounds like most of the construction that took place was apartments and hotels on the outskirts rather than stores. Now, remember in the previous episode, I said the law was selling land along Brush Creek to out-of-towners because they didn't know that it was prone to flooding? Well, you know, when Nichols bought up this land, he had the embankment built up in several locations. Uh, They even adjusted the path of the creek in a few. And in the 30s, some, maybe all, but I think just some of Brush Creek was paved with concrete. That's its own story entirely. Um, But in 1977, the worst happened. This thing that um, had been, has been alluded to all along, Brush Creek flooded. Not, Not just a little flood, major flood. Basements were flooded out, um, buildings were destroyed, uh, most were just damaged, but there were a few who were completely destroyed. Um, several people even died. All in all, it was it was really, really bad. And I bet cleanup took a long time, plus, you know, there's all this major revenue loss. And... Again, as I mentioned in the previous episode, the plaza is full of sculptures and fountains. They really help set the vibe of the place. We have the Fountain of Bacchus in the Chandler Court. The Pomona Fountain is in Pomona Court, of course. Uh, The Neptune Fountain is in front of the Balcony Building. And no, it's not all related to mythology, although it's starting to sound like it. Um... Although I did look it up, and it actually looks like like 90% of the fountains and statues reference Greek and Roman mythology, but not all. Uh, we do have the Bronze Boar on 47th Street. It's really popular. It's considered good luck to rub his snout. Uh, we also have the Court of Penguins. They are super cute, and they remind me of the penguins from Disney's Mary Poppins. And... Kansas Cityans, my fellow Kansas Cityans, did you know that we have a sculpture of Winston Churchill? Its official name is Married Love, and it sits on the south side of the Broadway Bridge across the street from the Ritz. It's actually a sculpture of Winston and his wife Clementine. By the way, how cute is her name? They're sitting on a bench together. How? What? Why? You ask? Well, thank you for asking. 
So uh, Churchill visited Missouri in 1946. He didn't come to Kansas City, but he did go to Westminster College in Fulton, which is only a hour or two away. I didn't look up how far it is, but it's not far. So the college invited the statesmen out, and President Truman added a note to the back, like, yeah, you should come for a visit. And so Winston's like, okay, yeah, I'll go. <laughs> and attending the speech is none other than Joyce Hall, the founder of Hallmark. Oh, we will get to him. I am so excited to cover him sometime, hopefully, maybe soon. Anyways, um, if you didn't know, Churchill, in addition to being a just a power force of a dude, repeatedly elected prime minister, he's a historian and an author. He's also an incredibly talented painter. He does watercolors. So Hall goes up to him after the speech and he's like, my dude, let's work together. And in the end, at first Churchill's like, no, nah, no, nah, I'm not interested because he was kind of private about his paintings actually. But in the end, um, he's convinced and so Churchill sends eight of his oil paintings to Hall. Hall has them photographed and then added to his greeting cards. And it's like the specialty run of greeting cards with paintings by Winston Churchill. It's hella popular. So they do a ton more. And then Hall convinced Churchill to do an exhibit of his work in the Nelson Gallery. That's huge. He hadn't exhibited his work ever before. And there's a lot more to their friendship and their business practice um, interactions together. But um, I'll skip all of that and we'll go ahead to the sculpture. So Miller Nichols and his wife Jeanette commissioned the sculpture in 1981. It cost the total of $250,000. And to help raise the funds, Miller helped arrange a biographical play on the life of Winston Churchill. It had only one showing on November uh, 1982. Sorry, in November 1982. Um, but this one showing was so popular, it raised all of the money that they needed for the sculpture. It was designed and created by a British sculpture, uh, sculpturist. What are you called if you do the sculpturing? Sculpturer? I don't know. Anyways, um, his name was Oscar Neiman. And he had created other works in England that were related to Churchill. So this was a perfect fit, right? It was unveiled May 12th, 1984. And Churchill's granddaughter was in attendance. How cool and sweet is that? Between 78 and 84, Sachs, Ralph Lauren, Laura Ashley, and Bonwit Teller all opened stores on the plaza. So now's when we're starting to get a little bit bougie. Well, actually, no, on, on further consideration, I'll take the back. We were bougie ahead of that. that I mean, come on, we had a Sears store before anyone else. Um, but most of the additions in the 80s and 90s were, again, more hotels and condominiums. Uh, if you live near the plaza, you know that construction is still frequent. Most of the time, I think it's road repairs. But um, I know that there was a new parking lot that was under construction for the longest time. Um, and I think it was delayed due to COVID. I don't know if it's open now or if they ever finished it. I'll have to go back soon and take a look at that specific parking lot. Um, 
Nordstrom was also supposed to open their store in September of 2020, but that got pushed back. Wow, that was super fast. Um, that's all I have on the plaza. Swinging back to company business, in 1980, Lynn McCarthy, the former treasurer, uh, became president after Davis Jackson retired and also took over as the board chair when Miller stepped down. Now, this is a juicy bit. So in 2002, Lynn was found guilty of, quote, stealing and defrauding the company from 1986 through 1995, end quote, in a federal court and sentenced to five years probation. I'm not sure what form that probation took. Also, I shouldn't have sounded so giddy when I said that it was a juicy bit, but I did find it and I was like, ooh, <laughs> how intriguing. According to Worley, quote, part of Miller's retirement from active leadership of the company resulted in the sale of much of Nichols' own family stock to the company employee stock benefit plan, end quote. But the plan didn't have enough assets to actually pay for the stock. So the company had to compensate for this by selling and mortgaging various properties, including the plaza. Um, the need to pay all these loans back because they, they didn't have the money for it the first place. They got a loan and now they still don't have money to pay back the loan. So all of this led them to reach out to an investment company in New York called Allen and Company. Um, they did a little bit of back and forth and then they told Allen and Company, now nah, we're good, we don't want you. But by then it's too late. Allen and Company, the folks working there, they're like, something's going on. They start sniffing around and uh, issuing lawsuits. So McCarthy, Lynn McCarthy, is El Presidente at this time and is trying to defend his position. Is going around to everyone at Nichols like, hey, did you check out these guys? They're trying to come in and just take us over. They're total sharks. But in 95, the board's like, no, we're done. McCarthy, you got to go. And so they fire him and several other company leaders. Um, a guy named Jack Frost, which is cute, took over um, as president for about a year. And then the board hired E. Barrett Brady to be the new president. Mr. Brady is still alive and well um, and has been active in multiple businesses during his lifetime, not just the Nichols. As of May 2021, his net worth is $1.25 million. But with his hire back in 96, the Nichols company went from being a private to a public business. Here's where it gets a little bit tricky, y'all. Pretty much all of my online sources cover the history of the plaza in the 20s and 30s. Um, some of them go as far as JC's death in the 50s. This book on Plaza History that I have by William Worley goes all the way up until the early, maybe mid-90s. And that's when it's published, and so that's when it stops. After that, I got nothing. Finally, I find out why. <laughs> it's because they changed their name. It's like, oh, that makes sense. No wonder I can't find you. Um, so in 2002, the J.C. Nichols Residential Real Estate merged with J.D. Reese Realtors and they created Reese and Nichols Realtor Inc. And then like a year later, 2003, they changed the name to Reese Nichols in order to emphasize that it was just one company, not two separate companies. And 
that is the last thing that I, that's still the last thing that I could find on the company. It's almost 20 years old information. If they have a company website, it's got to be on the dark web because I couldn't even find that much. Uh, before I log off for the day, I do want to discuss JC like uh, JC Nichols legacy again. Um, I covered a little bit about this in the legacy of the Confederacy part two, but I believe it bears repeating and I'm hopefully going to give you just a little bit more detail here. So there was a major push last summer to change the name of the J.C. Nichols Fountain and J.C. Nichols Parkway. The street got changed back to Mills Creek Park, which it had been previously before his death. Um, and they also voted to change the name of the fountain, and yet I still have not heard what they decided to change it to. I'm not sure if they've decided. And this push came because... Nichols, while building the plaza, building all these neighborhoods, being such a force within the city, he also, you know, he wasn't that great of a guy. He did some things that today we look back and we say, no, that was wrong, as we should. Because Nichols used multiple discriminatory practices to ensure that his neighborhoods that, quote, remained racially and socioeconomically homogeneous, end quote. I mean, I looked at pamphlets that, like, explicitly stated that Jews and African Americans were not welcome in these places. And that's not right. No matter if it's 1920 or 2020. But, um, you know, I am really pleased to inform you. I was pleased to learn that the Nichols family supported the name change. Um, the Miller Nichols Charitable Foundation promised to give the City of Fountains Foundation $100,000 for the continued maintenance of the uh, what we call the Nichols Fountain. So the City of Fountains Foundation was founded in 1973 to raise, quote, Funds to construct new fountains, manage trust funds to cover maintenance costs, and increase awareness of the importance of Kansas City's fountains, end quote. And the Miller-Nichols Charitable Foundation, well, I don't know what they do. Again, they live on the dark web. I know they're a 501c3, which means they're non-profit, and I found something that said that they formed in 92, but that was it. <laughs> um, now... While the Nichols family did officially support the name change, I also found an article with an interview with um, his grandson, Jesse C. the Third, and it sounds like he at least was not in favor of it. I will link you to this article on the website. Um, I understand his position he, in the article. It sounds like he's defending his grandfather because, you know, his grandfather did do so many things for the city. But the thing is, those of us who were and continue to be in favor of the name change are not trying to ignore that or erase history, which don't get me started on that whole... Ugh. It's just that we're trying to acknowledge the parts of our shared past that have been ignored or acknowledge parts of our shared past that were wrong and are wrong. 
Anyway, that is the end of today's episode. Thank you for joining me as we explore the history of the plaza. Sources. Alright, so getting the story researched and written has been a trip. Y'all know that it's very late. Um, I found out that the State Historical Society has the Miller Nichols Collection, the Robert O'Keefe Papers, and the J.C. Nichols Company Papers. And... By the time I found out they had all of that, like, I found out that they had the Miller-Nichols papers a long time ago. But when I found out they had the other two, I was like, oh, I want them so bad, but I'm already so late on this episode. So I did not request them, which means I'm probably going to return to the Miller-Nichols, um, sorry, to the Nichols Company history someday. Um, also, you know... As a mall, it's always changing. And so I feel like, especially from the 80s and forward, there's a lot that I didn't cover. And it's mostly because I couldn't find anything on modern, uh, recent history. But I did try to get the highlights for y'all. Anyways, um, I do have good sources other than that. I don't want to just complain about the sources I don't have. Um, so I did have the book by William Morley called The Plaza First and Always. It's really great. I love the photographs. I have newspaper articles and I have some scans from the Missouri Valley Research Center. For merchandise, go to Zazzle, that's Z-A-Z-Z-L-E, dot com slash store slash homegrown underscore Casey underscore store. Um, As I mentioned in the previous episode, I am going to be adding some new merch this summer. T-shirts and hats, mostly, I think. Make sure to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and Twitter. I am HomegrownKC on all of those. You can visit my website for additional information. That's HomegrownKC.wordpress.com. And if you have any episode suggestions or further comments or questions, you can email me at HomegrownKCPodcast at gmail.com. I have several new Patreon episodes recorded and more scheduled to be recorded throughout the coming summer. It is a joy to speak with each person about what they do. So if you are not already a Patreon subscriber, I hope you will become one. You'll get access to these exclusive episodes. You will get an item from the store valued at $5 or less. And you will get a shout out here on the show. So thank you, Bjorn, for your continued support. You get charged the day that you sign up and then $5 on the first of each month after that. You can subscribe at Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash homegrownkc or redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. And if you don't want to be a monthly subscriber, maybe you just want to give a one-time donation, you can do that at redcircle.com slash homegrownkc. Thanks goes out to my talented sister-in-law, Sarah McCombs, for the creation of my logo. To the Dear Misses for the use of their song, Kansas City, as the intro and outro music of the show. And to local libraries, which enabled me to gather all of my research. And thank you, listeners, for just being willing to listen to me ramble on about history. Appreciate you. Bye-bye.
seem to shake this feeling And I can't seem to get you off my mind 